Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. From the New Books Network, this is New Books and Geography. I'm your host, Dino Kadich, from the University of Cambridge. Two striking sentences open the book we're talking about today. Quote, Learning time and space is like moving through a labyrinth. Paths are entangled, indirect, and often misleading. End quote. Safed Haji Mohamedovich is refreshing in his honesty and poetic in his prose as he leads us through this labyrinth, drawing lines between time, encounter, and landscape along the way. At the same time, he challenges some of the categories we as scholars take for granted, like ethnography, linear time, and academic writing itself. His book, Waiting for Elijah, Time and Encounter in a Bosnian Landscape, defies summary, so we might as well just get into it. Safet Haji Mohamedovic is Senior Teaching Fellow in the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London, and I'm so delighted he could join us today. Safet, welcome. Thank you, Dino. I'm delighted uh, to be able to participate in this podcast for New Books in Geography. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Um, So just to start out, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book? Of course. Um, So um, I uh, currently teach anthropology, anthropology of gender specifically at SOAS, University of London. Um, I have uh, previously taught uh, at several other universities, mostly the University of Bristol, but also at Goldsmiths, University of London, where I have completed my doctoral thesis. And uh, the book that we're talking about today is uh, actually based on my doctoral research. And um, that uh, research and the interest in in, in this particular topic stem from something that I've already started with um, my MPhil research uh, in Cambridge, where you are uh, right now. And uh, it really is um, about a conundrum how faced with extreme violence, systematic violence in Bosnia, um, we can think of the richness, historical and present day richness of encounters of syncretic religion, shared and syncretic religion. And um, how do we reconcile these two seemingly opposing um, processes, social processes. Um, and uh, the way this topic opened up for me uh, was really through a question about syncretism and the way I found the, the kind of the geographical space, if you will, um, is uh, really through uh, a focus on one specific syncretic feast of St. Elijah. Um, and um, It was really only through this focus on syncretism and what I thought would be 
originally a, a book about landscape and spatiality that time and temporality appeared to be inescapable. And uh, so I have followed, in a way, uh, really time rather than space, uh, focusing on a particular annual cycle of uh, religious feasts uh, in the country, which are part of a much wider um, sort of uh, network of religious feasts in the Mediterranean and beyond the Mediterranean. So in that sense, Bosnia is not a specific case. And in this other sense of the nationalist a disassociative violence, it is also not a special case. So this case study could very easily then be transported or transposed into, into, into many other contexts. Yeah, um, but there is something kind of singular about the place that you study. And I think you focus a lot on the field kind of as a really special place. And it, it seems to be a special place to you in the book. So can you tell us a little bit about the field of um, Gatsko and the characters that populate it, the mythological characters, the real characters, the people there? Thank you. I'm glad that you that you also mentioned the mythological characters um, uh, who are part of these conversations and they populate the landscape, certainly. Um, the field of Gatsko is uh, a large flatland, a large space of contained karst uh, in southeastern Bosnia um, on the border with Montenegro. Now, karst is a very particular kind of landscape. Um, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a porous limestone landscape, uh, of which there are many examples in Bosnia, Croatia, Montenegro, and along the Dinaric mountain chain. Um, uh, it's made up of limestone and porous rock, uh, which also uh, figures into the mythologies in, in numerous ways. In uh, Gatsko, limestone starts off um, a phenomenon uh, of Trebišnica, or a sinking river. This is a river which has, uh, for the most part, flows underground, uh, but then... Uh, surfaces overground sometimes um, this is uh, part of modernist projects which attempted to use its um, hydro potential but every time it surfaces it attains a new name and it has I think about 19 different names and uh, but the river itself is uh, enigmatic and underground and as I said it starts off in this uh, space of uh, Gatsko and it's intimately related with the cosmologies that I was talking about. And it really is those spaces where the river sinks into the earth um, that are uh, boundaries between the world and the underworld in this cosmology. Now, I have referred for the most part to Gatsko uh, or the field of Gatsko as simply the field. And for me, it's, uh, it's a specific space where I have spent a year of research than venturing into other spaces as well. But it also is an, uh, a sort of a, an analytical, a heuristic device to speak about um, a, a field uh, of research and to speak about karst 
fields more generally and their associated cosmologies. So I wasn't that surprised when visiting Yucatan in Mexico to see that uh, these uh, sort of pits uh, called cenotes in, in uh, Yucatan are also spaces where the Mayan conducted their rituals associated with death. Um, uh, Gatsko, in that sense, this space can be noticed in, it has these peculiar connections through the non-humans. Now, my interlocutors um, appear throughout the book um, as much as, uh, as I could um, sort of form it with, um, uh, within the book through their own voices. And uh, it really is mostly elderly people. Um, now, if I can paint the picture for those of you who haven't read the book, um, this large karst field is uh, sort of, since the 70s, um, separated by a, a gigantic thermal power plant, uh, a Yugoslav thermal power plant. This power plant um, was built because there, precisely because of the karst landscape, because there are rich lignite deposits underneath. And so there's this huge um, um, thermal power plant and also the residue of the mines, which is a, a, another small mountain of white ash. Now, this mountain and this power plant was built on top of uh, one of the central ritual places in the field, the place of Elijah's Day festivities on the 2nd of August. And it already intervened into, into the kind of the structure, the social structure and the ritual structure uh, according to the annual cycle. Um, the, in the middle of this field is also a town. Uh, there are many villages on the sort of fringes of the field, but in the middle there is a town. Now this town in the 1990s, um, in what is referred to as war in Bosnia, uh, Yugoslav wars, wars of the 1990s, and otherwise, uh, this town was um, homogenized in an ethno-religious sense. This means that um, uh, the non-Serb population was expelled um, and uh, uh, sort of formulated various uh, kinds of communities outside of Gatsko, many diasporas in the United States, in Croatia, and, and also uh, internally displaced populations within Bosnia. Um, and uh, after the war, uh, much of the property, or most of the property, uh, of quote-unquote non-Serbs uh, has been sold off. So the town continues in that sense to be homogenized, uh, even though, of course, I say quote-unquote because I'm not counting blood cells, but I'm thinking of the politics of ethnicity here. And um, in that sense, uh, so this kind of ethno-political program was very much successful. My interlocutors were, on the one hand, the so-called returnees, and there is a ghostly sort of uh, uh, flavor to this word. Uh, the returnee is mostly elderly people who have returned to one part of the field, uh, and mostly Muslim. Um, and uh, in other villages, also elderly Serb interlocutors or Orthodox Christian interlocutors. Um, uh, I have also uh, sort of uh, 
written about Gurbeti Roma communities, uh, but I have written about them through the narratives uh, of uh, those Muslims and uh, Christians whom I encountered because the Gurbeti have not returned uh, to the field of Gatsko. So perhaps that can be an answer to this question and then we'll continue as, as we go through the other questions. Yeah, so I'd love to talk about these ghostly presences, but I think first it might be good to speak a little bit about Elijah's day and what it means. And I really enjoyed how you kind of implicitly compare um, the experience of waiting for Elijah to the characters in Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, um, where everyone is kind of constantly waiting for something to happen that sort of materializes, but actually it's like the waiting that matters. Can you speak a little bit about that? Thank you. Um, indeed, Godot, uh, Waiting for Godot, Beckett's famous play, um, has appeared as an association, as, as I discovered, or the title of the book discovered, uh, the, the text of the book, in a way. Um, waiting in the field for Elijah um, is at least double-coded. In the traditional, in the structure of the traditional calendar, um, it is really the, the kind of the affective side uh, of, uh, of the annual cycle that appears as waiting. So as soon as one St. Elijah's Day is over, waiting begins again. Why? Because it's the central locus it's the central point in the annual cycle. The community, which is otherwise throughout the winter locked in heavy snow. And believe me, this is very heavy snow. Uh, you know, one of the years, um, I think it was 2012, it was locked in snow so much that uh, a helicopter had to uh, be sent off with supplies for the villages, but then it crashed into the snow there. And... Um, uh, one of my interlocutors would use these improvised skis to go from house to house. And it really is um, a, a long winter for which one needs to prepare. One needs to prepare throughout, you know, from the beginning of spring until St. Elijah's Day. And it really is St. Elijah's Day that marks the end of this uh, strenuous summer labor. Um, and uh, it's a harvest feast. So it is a central location that is uh, a mass get-together, an occasion for a social occasion uh, which will not appear again until the end of summer. And um, so that, this is where everything happens. This is where uh, marriages would be arranged this is where um, sort of singing groups of the kind of locally uh, traditional forms of song, Becharats and Ganga, would perform. This is also where uh, people or groups of men would enter into ritual fistfights. And this would happen very frequently, almost every year, not after the war. Um, and it was explained to me as a release of energy that would otherwise now imagine if you kind of don't do not release all the joy, happiness, but also the anger, and then you, be, you come to be locked inside your household uh, throughout the winter. 
um, what would happen, that sort of uh, energy would be released somewhere else. Uh, so, so it really is a, a, a social occasion par excellence. And, um, and it would be awaited throughout the year. Now, this is sort of the traditional waiting for Elijah. After the 1990s, after uh, the community was violently restructured, those who have returned to the field and those who beckoned the old field of those get-togethers, they waited again for St. Elijah's Day, but now in a different way. They waited to wait the way they used to. So it's a double-coded waiting. They waited for the kind of waiting in anticipation of the social gathering. But this other kind of waiting was also, it was filled with hope, but also with dread. It was filled with uncertainty. The community, the, this large diasporic community would return for one or a few days and the field would suddenly resemble itself. And after that one day, um, the, the landscape would again fall silent and it would be again filled with uh, uncertainty and everyday forms of violence really for the returnees. And also um, uh, when I was there and uh, and even presently, um, the forms of nationalist disassociation of these religious forms and feasts and these communities continues um, into formations of exclusive ethno-religious national belongings. Thank you. Yeah, so I think that's a really good jumping point into syncretism, um, which is something that you discuss throughout the book. Um, and for you, I think you take a unique um, and and thought-provoking view of syncretism um, as kind of a moment, right? As something that um, doesn't doesn't draw or like separate religions, right? Um, that's my my crude interpretation. So, can you talk a little bit about how syncretism happens in the field um, and how that's changed? Sure. Um, so. Syncretism is one of those words which has its own histories, which are um, quite particular. And for quite some time, it was a word also avoided because historically it had also been used with connotations of uh, certain religious mixtures that were uh, uh, deemed uh, improper. Uh, by the church. So um, when, uh, when I start writing about syncretism, it really is from this argument presented famously by uh, Charles Stewart and Rosalind Shaw, um, where they say, well, you know, if we start pinpointing or discovering syncretism, we'll end up arguing that everything is syncretic in terms of religion, certainly. I mean, tell me one religion, religious form, ritual, and so on, which is not an amalgamation of different kinds of uh, trajectories, histories, forms, and so on. Um, There is none. And the same applies to language, culture, and so on. So 
um, discerning syncretism in that way would have been for me problematic to say, well, because this is um, a ritual in which Christians, Muslims, and Roma participate together, it is syncretic. However, Rosalind Shaw and uh, Charles Stewart have introduced another term, anti-syncretism or antagonism to religious religious synthesis. And it really is through this antagonism, through this anti-syncretism that I approached uh, the question of syncretism in the field. Uh, It is really the nationalist anti-syncretic violence and the formation uh, of uh, sort of bounded, discrete, separated religious communities or the idea that they could and should be uh, produced that uh, suggested itself in contrast to the richness of shared concepts, uh, sacred spaces, um, histories, and so on. Um, So when I speak about syncretism in the field, it really is a focus primarily on proximity and encounter between those um, individual and social bodies and bodies of knowledge that are deemed to be um, uh, dissociated by this uh, antagonistic politics. Um, so, so, so my focus is really on a certain anthropology of proximity, and in in a conceptual sense, and in in the sort of sense of these rituals as well, and in an everyday sense. And I follow there um, the writing, uh, a, a beautiful essay by one um, Edinburgh-based anthropologist called Eust Fontaine, who wrote about or called for anthropology of proximity. Um, noting that um, that really what we need to focus on, rather than reiterating and reasserting politicized differences on ever more philosophical, abstract, theoretical grounds, that we need to turn to certain proximities, coexistences, and continuities of people's uh, material, historical, conceptual engagements. And... Um, This approach to proximity, to encounter, for me and for Fontaine, it it does not deny uh, the the reality of dissociation. It does not deny the the actuality of political and politicized differences, but rather it is a methodological tool to frame a, sort of a, 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 a methodological choice of how to start a conversation. And so it is a political choice, as, as any methodological choice would be, in that sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder then, uh, talking of proximity, I think that proximity and this kind of waiting to wait are really connected. Um, so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, kind of like the, the politics around that. And um, I'm specifically thinking of the Gurbeti, um, who have not been around for almost three decades um, now, but are still kind of a topic of conversation constantly, it seems like. Yes, of course. Um, so I have 
We've written about uh, the Guribeti Roma. Now, Roma is another uh, one of those uh, ethnonyms that needs to be unpacked. And uh, it is not a singular certain, it's not a, it, it might seem like a reference to, to, to a, some uh, homogenized, homogenous community, but it certainly is not. There are many Roma languages. Uh, um, different kinds of Roma groups and certainly traditions and histories. Um, and uh, Gurbeti in, in the field are a particularly historically present uh, group uh, or uh, of Roma people who used to arrive early each spring and spend the warm season in, in the field and their lives uh, as the lives of those who were settled in the field were very much intertwined. So they mostly worked on um, kalaisanya, or the tinning of copper dishes. And copper dishes, for those who don't know, are uh, considered to be the best kind of, of, of dish. Um, and they're very durable, but they need to be maintained. And this maintenance uh, takes a lot of effort, and it's a whole... Um, a story that uh, perhaps we don't have the time for now, but uh, these Gurbeti uh, specialized in that, amongst other things. And this was uh, sort of a way, this economy, uh, where they offered the services of tinning copper dishes, was a, a way to form the, the social relations with the settled people. Um, so Fata, one of my interlocutors, said, when Avdo, a Gurbeti man, would come and he would uh, come to, you know, every year I would give him, prepare my copper dishes already for him, um, and he would arrive, I would say, in this tepsia, in this sort of large copper dish, I will, after you're done, bake a pie. And um, I, this pie will at once test whether the copper dish was properly uh, maintained, properly tinned, but it will also be a compensation for the service because it was mostly this local natural exchange where the settlers would uh, give eggs, uh, cheese, uh, uh, cooked food and so on in exchange for these services. But it is really in uh, that pie and in that copper dish and in um, uh, this exchange that a certain... Uh, historical and traditional forms of communication were sort of encapsulated. And um, so the proximity um, that was narrated um, between the settled people, Muslims and Serbs, and Gurbeti Roma uh, appears everywhere. When I first arrived to the field of Gatsko, and before I even connected to most of the people who would then become my key interlocutors, I went through these various landscapes, and they seemed to me, to a large extent, desolate, uh, you know, open, empty spaces, beautiful but empty. And it was really when, when one starts hearing these narratives about where the Gurbeti camps were uh, and uh, established, the, the kinds of get-togethers for St. George's Day near around the fire near the Gurbeti camps. These stories would populate, populate the landscapes in a completely different way. And, uh, and one 
would not be able to walk through those landscapes in the same way afterwards. And uh, it is really this um, affective resonance of those narratives, of the laughter of my interlocutors when they would remember those get-togethers with the Gurbeti Roma that would change the landscapes for me. And um, which, again, points, of course, to the importance of... um, developing one's um, methodological tools uh, to understand landscapes through long-term research, through intimate conversations. Uh, Landscapes are not something as such. Spaces are not something as such. When we attempt to objectify them in that way, distance them from those narratives, stories, connections, um, we are imagining something else. It's a, it's a kind of imaginary that uh, very often violates the, the forms of life um, in spaces that we research. Yeah, and I think what you write then kind of troubles a lot of narratives in Bosnia about kind of who, quote, rural people are. Um, and, and how they act towards other people, I guess. Um, and it's interesting that you said that most of your interlocutors were older people who also, I think, um, there's a certain image of them, at least in contrast with younger people as, um, kind of, they are the ones who are nationalist, um, or, um, who, who committed violence, um, and, and young people and, urban people are anti-nationalist. Um, and so I wonder kind of how you approach that, if that was something that you expected um, and how, how like these disruptions um, affected the way you saw these landscapes. Hmm. Thanks. Uh, I, you know, um, the, 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 certainly there was a difference between the, the small urban space of the Gatsko town and the villages, uh, in the sense that the kind of the town embodied a certain ethos of nationalism. It was, as I mentioned, uh, sort of a quote unquote ethnically cleansed uh, space, uh, whereas uh, the villages saw some very modest return. Now, this return also relates to uh, to my. Uh, due to the ava- availability of interlocutors to a certain sense. Um, the returnees were mostly elderly, uh, the younger people who already formed new lives in various diasporic spaces. And um, so they would visit uh, mostly for Elijah's day, these diasporic communities. Sometimes they would come to visit their grandparents and so on. But it was for the most part the returnees who were elderly and also in the Orthodox Christian villages, it was mostly elderly people because of um, uh, sort of uh, uh, the, the large scale uh, sort of um, migration of people for work, also uh, the so-called brain drain into various other countries. So what we see perhaps for different reasons in in the Muslim and the Orthodox Christian villages is really that the elderly people occupied those spaces for the most part. And the elderly people were also the ones who 
throughout their lives uh, understood very much what the annual cycle means as a structure for the community. They embodied it. And uh, they also, um, in rare cases when uh, younger people were present, they would very much uh, attempt through didactic narratives to translate this kind of knowledge, knowledge of living in the field, knowledge of living with the seasons and the importance of those encounters, they would, uh, they would make sure to translate that knowledge and transfer it to the younger ones. Um, so one of my interlocutors, one of my rare younger interlocutors, really uh, in uh, the village of Kula, uh, Ed, he would tell me narratives that I later understood were absolutely impossible to his um, uh, to have been gathered through his experience. He left or he was expelled uh, together with his family from Gatsko when he was just a baby, several months old. And um, in this moment of uh, of that violence, when they had to flee, uh, his grandmother, and uh, in grandma, the word grandmother in Bosnian language can be nana, nena, but also baba is one, is one of those words. Uh, his grandmother in, took Edo, this little baby, in her arms, and she ran towards, together with the community, towards the caves in the nearby mountain, which is also called baba, or grandmother. And they hid in these caverns uh, in the Baba Mountain for several months before they fled uh, onwards on their um, sort of um, journey of forced removal from that space. Um, when I did some archival research, I noticed that this fleeing into Baba Mountains and those caverns is also traditional. So. Uh, we have narratives from the First World War of uh, a certain Jula Dizdarevich who also writes about the community fleeing into those caverns. So there is this sort of um, also now almost traditional, one could say, a cycle of, of kind of fleeing into those spaces. And um, the generations whom I spoke to, they embodied this landscape in terms of knowing also when to hide and how to hide from the violence. Um, they embodied the waiting for Elijah's day. They understood the importance of, for example, kumstvo uh, connections, which is a particular form of ritual kinship, which was established in this space almost exclusively between Orthodox Christians and Muslims. So it wasn't inverted. Um, into the community, into the religious community, quote unquote, but rather it was established between these religious communities. So there are many forms of these proximities and connections that, that form part of certain bodily knowledge for my interlocutors. And in reference, in their constant references to this landscape of proximities and encounters, I understood that. Uh, it suggests uh, a certain form of resistance to the nationalist violence. It sort of 
created a specific time space. I refer to time space through Mikhail Bakhtin's work, work of a Russian linguistic philosopher. He talks about chronotopes, the, the merging of time and space into particular themes. And uh, what my interlocutors, for the most part, did is they referred to this time space of uh, encounters of the annual cycle. Um, so this kind of temporality related to the annual cycle as fixed to the landscape of Gatsko, and then they contrasted it to the time space of the nationalist field and the nationalist Gatsko. And in doing so, they resisted the workings of the nationalist time space. They suggested that uh, the survival of <clears throat> this uh, sacro-spatial um, uh, kind of uh, frame of their community. Yeah, and I think you you call kind of the the result of that that contestation, or or maybe something simultaneous with it, like a schizochronotopia of these kind of contrasting um, or contradictory time spaces. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, kind of what is a, a schizochronotopia and what does living in one look like in the field? Thank you. Um, so uh, when I started with chronotopes or time spaces um, uh, for, for which uh, Bakhtin says uh, uh, they are, you know, well, in, in this kind of merging of time and space. And he is, he was writing about literature and he was writing about chronotopes in the novel primarily. And he wasn't referring to this sort of uh, uh, wider cultural um, possibilities uh, of employing the, the chronotope. He says, time thickens, uh, takes on flesh, space becomes charged and responsive to the movements of plot and history. And um, uh, so the, the spatial and temporal indicators for him are fused into these carefully thought out concrete holes, right? And so when I, uh, what I noticed about uh, the, the politics of time spaces in the field of Gatsko is that there are these two grand time space themes one which I called Sacroscape because it builds upon and references this sort of uh, um, annual cycle rituals and encounters between those communities and wider encounters with mythical beings and so on. And what I called Ethnoscape, not in reference to a Padurai, but more in, in line with how Anthony Smith referred to them uh, as landscapes endowed with poetic ethnic meaning. Um, so uh, this sort of nationalist theme of time-space, which is populated with martyrs and heroes and uh, uh, warnings of suffering and uh, a, a time-space which insists on the homogenization of the ethno-national body. So in noticing this rift between these two grand themes, these two grand uh, time-space topics in the landscape, um, I, I also noticed that people 
willy-nilly have to you know, bear them and live both of them um, in, in the same body, in the same landscape and in the same individual body. Um, so I coined this uh, term schizochronotope or schizochronotopia um, from the Greek schizain to split. So it is really about a split between these two overarching themes, chronotopic themes. Not that there are no, no other chronotopes out there, but these were two grand dominant chronotopic themes. And uh, they both relied on certain kinds of past. They both laid claim to certain futures of the field, but there was a divergence into the kinds of past that they constructed and into the kinds of futures that they wished. Now, diverging past, diverging futures, yet in the same landscape. And how does one um, sort of reconcile and negotiate between those two grand themes? And um, in, 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 in what, at one point in the book, as I'm writing about articulations of home, um, and I, I'm going back to these hundreds of hours of recordings of my interviews and my notes and scratch notes and so on, um, I, I noticed the, the endings of those conversations. And I really started to pay attention to the endings and certain, or certain breaks in the conversation. And um, I started sort of taking them out of the interviews and, and translating them separately. And what I noticed is that very long, very evocative, rich narratives of how it used to be, of this past, of encounters, of the annual cycle, and so on, of this landscape populated with, with faces, with song, and so on. Oh, landscapes which appear uh, idyllic, so they're certainly idealized also, they would su suddenly break into the present. And so these rich, evocative narratives would, would suddenly break. They would break into a long sigh or a sip of coffee or a pull on the cigarette. And uh, these sentences are unfinished. They're broken. And uh, what I noticed or what I thought uh, about these uh, moments is that they're moments of transposition from this past landscape um, or this past chronotope into the present chronotope, into the violence of the present chronotope. And it, it is really in this transposition where those two chronotopes met in the same body and sort of where they became articulated for me as a researcher. And they really became articulate articulated through those silences. So they were not completely articulable uh, at all. And um, um, in a sense, um, so I related this to Elaine Scarry's research, um, who argued that physical pain might resist language, um, but also that it might shatter language or deconstruct it into pre-language of sighs and groans and so on. And for me, this 
silence uh, in the field and this brokenness of language as a response to the present um, seemed like an inability uh, or a bodily refusal to continue to protract these unwanted horizons of the present. So language and body sort of you know, uh, articulated then a refusal, a resistance to this chronotopic nationalist theme, to the ethnoscape. And um, um, famously, uh, for those uh, who, who read some anthropology, Keith Basso studied uh, silence uh, in um, Western Apache, uh, amongst the Western Apache communities and the instances when they give up on words. Um, and he argued that silence, much like speech, um, required uh, sort of the knowledge of channels and codes of communication and that it responded to certain situations. And it is this, this form of silence and the brokenness of language, I think, that best articulates the, the process, the post-war process of sort of this friction, this uneasiness, this split between the two chronotopes. Uh, and um, in a way, they're sort of struggling to, striving to erase each other, striving to forget each other, yet they're both there in the same landscape, in the same body. Thank you for that. So I want to switch gears now a little bit and talk about you, um, because I think you do such an amazing job of talking about yourself in this field. Um, so. I take it that you're not originally from Gatsko or that area. Um, and yet you say that the field, that the field spills into you. Um, and you say that, uh, that you eat Kaimuk differently after the field. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about, um, kind of on the one hand, what, what the field did to you. Um, but also, uh, the process of then representing that in this research, in this book, um, how, how that came about and how you negotiated that. Thank you. Um, it's, a, it's a complex question that anthropologists are struggling with in different ways. Um, and I think um, my... So I, I was not born in Gascon. I was born in a small town in northern Bosnia, which is now a district. Uh, so DC, Brčkom, which lies on the river Sava. And my family is from various parts of Bosnia. Um, and in that sense, even though my much of my education, certainly my postgraduate education, uh, my MPhil in Cambridge and my PhD in, uh, uh, at Goldsmiths University of London and my work for, for, for the most part is in the UK, um, I am Bosnian. I'm from Bosnia. Actually, I was born in Yugoslavia, so um, um, so slightly different uh, country. Um, but uh, I am Bosnian. And there was uh, an important question for me, and really one that I tackled and struggled with throughout the writing and afterwards, and I think it's really important to struggle with these questions. Um, uh, how close is Gatsko? How close to home is this home that is, uh, or homeland, language, and so on? Um, 
And I think it's very important to struggle with this question. On the other hand, I think it comes too often, too easily, uh, an assumption of a certain kind of detachment and objectivity for people who were not born in the countries where they do research. Um, and uh, this is, I think, much more dangerous, this idea that of detachment. Um, so uh, I struggled with this. Now, I also... Um, now, in anthropology, as, as many of the researchers um, and anthropological listeners to this podcast might know, um, there, there was that reflex, reflexivity turn, sort of a turn towards the researcher, toward, which asked for the researchers to understand both their positionality, their own particular histories, their own power positions and so on in the field, but also um, uh, sort of to reflect upon their own histories, their own thoughts, their own experiences in the very formation of the research question. What is it in my life? What is it in my experience? What is it in my um, uh, histories that, that produces this research interest, this research question and so on? And certainly... Um, one of the formational experiences for me and for many anthropologists and other um, social researchers or researchers of the social working in Bosnia, the formational experience in one way or another is that fracture of the 1990s war. Again, as a, when we started this conversation, I noted to you that for me, this research question is about how can we reconcile the disassociative violence, the nationalism, uh, and the rich histories and present-day uh, communication between these religious groups, between people more generally. Um, and, uh, and this question relates to my uh, experience of living in Sarajevo during the siege, of living together with people more generally, but people of different kinds of persuasions, uh, religions, and so on, and uh, an understanding also through my family histories, yes, um, the richness of, of these encounters and communications and their articulations. Um, so, but when I arrived to Gatskom, I understood that it will also um, take much learning in the sense of those things that are presumed to be known to me, learning in terms of the language. I mean, every two minutes I asked, but what does this word mean? And they would say, well, easiest is a type of oak dust that we put in pillows uh, for fertility and uh, sexuality in the bedroom. And, you know, so the so language was filled and, of course, um, very different to what I... Uh, came to know by growing up for the most part in Sarajevo and sort of an urban environment and so on. Um, and in many different ways, uh, and certainly Elijah for me was not part of my uh, sort of life history before then. When Elijah and uh, Gatsko's landscapes and this annual cycle, Saint George and the dragons and the nymphs and the fairies and uh, epic songs, when they entered uh, my life, they also 
uh, sort of transformed the way the ways in which I relate not only to Gatsko but to other spaces. So my friends right now will know that in Hampstead Heath, close to where I live now, there is Elijah's Oak, um, a very specific grand oak. Now oaks are related to Saint Elijah as the thunderer. Um, oaks are generally related to thunder gods and thunder related uh, sort of mythical beings. Um, I think there was even one study that suggested that oaks would attract uh, lightning much uh, sooner than other trees uh, in, in, in an open space. So uh, they have been related, of course, to various sort of Indo-European beings and to Elijah, who is the inheritor of uh, the Slavic um, thunder um, and, uh, and so on. Um, uh, the Slavic thunder Perun. Now, in, um, in thinking about these intimacies and the kind of the knowledge that, uh, that changes the interlocutor, um, I think it's the most important question is really how does it, um, how does this ontological, so this experience, this uh, to a certain extent embodiment of that landscape of those narratives, but also an understanding of their situated meaning, how does it oppose an, an epistemological challenge? How does it change the kinds of questions we ask, the kinds of conceptual frameworks that we employ? And uh, this is how I arrived at the anthropology of proximity. This is also how I arrived at the anthropology of affect, even though uh, uh, conversations on affect are uh, much more developed now in that sense. Um, but really sort of finding and refining these conceptual tools based on the kind of intimacy of knowledge, intimacy with that landscape. Um, this was very important to me. Thanks. Yeah, and I think in general in the book, that's really evident. Um, but in particular, in the second part of the book, um, which is called The Many Faces of Elijah, where you kind of follow lines of flight, I think is maybe one way to put it, um, in a way that in, in some sense is a kind of academic writing, Um Certainly it's, it's at the level of writing as the rest of the book, but also, and I think you say, um, kind of that, that you open questions and, and don't necessarily answer them. Um, so you take us through kind of toponyms, um, you take us to Palestine and to Visoko and to all of these different places, um, in a really kind of exciting, sometimes a little bit of a whirlwind, um, but I think overall quite enjoyable way. And so I wonder how this second part of the book, um, which I think is called like a, uh, what is it? The epic, um, or it's a, the poetry of the landscape. Sorry, I've lost my notes here. Uh, so the Gatsko Georgics, the Georgics are the, the poetry of landscape. Um, yes, of course. Thank you for, for mentioning it. It's, it's, um, for me, the second part of the book is very important. Now, various readers, and I've uh, had uh, the pleasure of having um, various uh, interlocutors in the writing up stages and later on um, before the publication of the book, who, uh, some of whom even suggested that perhaps the first part of the book and the second one should be published as separate books. Um, 
it's uh, the second part is a long winding journey and uh, through the many faces of Elijah, which then one learns are also the many faces of George and which um, uh, lead not only through these faces of Elijah in the field, and there are many faces in the field of Gatsko itself, but then uh, it, the iterations of these mythical characters of these encounters and their struggles with various kinds of polit political programs in Bosnia, uh, across the Mediterranean basin, and as you mentioned, in Palestine. And Palestine, in that sense, uh, it's a different articulation, but there are similarities in the sense that St. George, or Hidr, um, this green uh, sort of saint, prophet um, of the springtime, is also um, positioned against the kind of the forms of ethno-nationalism, uh, and exclusionary politics as a form of resistance, perhaps much more explicitly than in Bosnia and in Gatsko. So the many faces of Elijah, um, it, is, it can be read first rather than second. So if you haven't read the book and you're deciding now based perhaps on this podcast to, to, to read it, you can also start from the second part of the book, because uh, it is a particular kind of context which I thought was necessary to counteract some of, the, some of the conversations in the first part. The first part is called Time and its Discontents, and it deals with various questions uh, of the temporality of home, of the temporality as related to the destruction of this annual cycle and so on, but it's always... Uh, position in this kind of post-war sense, and it refers, of course, because people themselves do, to this fractured landscape. Now, as I said, these narratives of my interlocutors, before they would break into the, the present, they formulated a very um, complex um, uh, sort of cosmology, a very cohesive cosmology, which I thought, based on, on, on these conversations, uh, uh, should not be encapsulated only and bound only to this post-war transitional space, uh, but rather needs to be understood and should be valued also um, as uh, examples of a very developed uh, cosmological conversation, relationship to landscape and so on. Um, and when I started writing this chapter, I really um it it really took off and then it did not want to end and it's a very 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 long chapter um and it's precisely because those connections those encounters conceptual mythical uh everyday and so on they continue and they're they have very long histories and they're wide spatially and so one could trace saint george hither from the Indian subcontinent to the British Isles and finds those similarities, connections, and so on. They are uh, very surprising in the uh, the amount of continuity, really, and similarity, but also um, in the iterations and particular context contextualizations that one can perceive. Um, so the the Gatsko Georgics here, in reference to Virgil's famous Georgics. Um, 
it really um, uh, they start with compiled narratives. Um, I, I I start this chapter with ten scenes on of Saint George's Day, and end the chapter with ten scenes of Saint Elijah's Day. Now between Saint George's Day according to the Julian calendar on the 6th of May and uh, St. Elijah's Day, according to the Julian calendar on the 2nd of August, there is this whole warm season um, of labor, but also various apotropaic rituals, uh, connections, and so on. And the field uh, is in many ways articulated there. Um, And uh, these 10 scenes... Um, in these ten scenes, you will see uh, a conversation between my various interlocutors on the meanings of trees, um, on certain rituals descending down to water springs on, on St. George's Day and so on. But these are constructed conversations, or to a certain sense, they're not confabulations, but they are uh, constructed in the sense that I uh, construct a conversation between people who are divided uh, by uh, the predicaments of migration, post-war separation, uh, and so on. Um, so it really is there that I construct the conversation from my conversations with individuals into sort of a group conversation, um, and uh, and then continue venturing into these uh, iterations of St. George, Hidder, the Green One, um, and Elijah and their various um, uh, importance for other landscapes uh, across Bosnia and uh, outside of Bosnia. And um, what one sees there is that uh, Kidr uh, and George and Elijah are these syncretic anti-nationalist figures par excellence, that they really are uh, encapsulating this um, this resistance, this fight against uh, exclusion in many ways. So when I visited Palestine and Israel, um, which was um, uh, as much as it was beautiful, also difficult an experience, I was really searching for those places related to Hidr, related to St. George, related to Elijah. And uh, for example, in Al-Lud, in, uh, or Lida or Lod, uh, near Tel Aviv, um, this magnificent structure, um, which is an Orthodox monastery on top of a Byzantine crypt, but also a part of the same comp- architectural complex as the mosque, um, all dedicated to St. George and Hidr. So the mosque is uh, the mosque of Hidr, Prophet, Prophet Hidr, uh, the green one, and the, the monastery is of St. George. Underneath, uh, in this Byzantine crypt, is uh, the George uh, is said to be buried. And this space is visited by Christians, Muslims, and others, uh, particularly women um, sort of um, who pray for fertility, because George, as this avernal saint, prophet, is, uh, is also one granting fertility, miraculous fertility to land, to people, and so on. Now, in Bosnia, if you trans- uh, sort of uh, travel into any, almost any locale in Bosnia, um, you will hear narratives of St. George's rituals related to fertility. 
And uh, when young women uh, on the morning of St. George's Day descend down to water rapids to engage in a ritual called Omaha, and they unclothe and they bathe there, uh, they, uh, they also um, are watched from nearby bushes or behind trees by young men. Um, and uh, they know that, the, that these young men will attempt to, to kind of sneak a peek at them washing, but they are also quite sort of performatively angry about this. Later on, the same men will, on, on St. George's Day, will try to steal their uh, virginal flowers or miloduch uh, from their front doors or from their gardens. Um, and this uh, sort of uh, uh, symbolic uh, kind of meaning contained in these rituals is really one about fertility. And uh, the dragon, which is part of the same narratives, part of epic uh, poetry, part of the songs, um, is uh, always attempts in these songs and uh, stories to steal the maiden to steal the young woman. Now, the dragon appears, if we read carefully these, um, uh, these myths, appears as a symbol of infertility. So it is really between the kind of the fertility symbolized in St. George or the, the young man in these rituals and dragon who symbolizes infertility that these maidens, mythical and real, negotiate between life and death and their rituals will very often occur exactly in these places where life and death uh, sort of um, meet, or where the ketonic, the underworld, and the world meet. So close to inside or close to caves, close to those places where water rushes into the underground, and so on. So th there is a very complex cosmology that, um, that requires analysis but need not be articulated anthropologically simply in terms of the violence of the 1990s or nationalist violence more generally. So this was my way to sort of balance what, what, what occurs in the first part of the book. I think it's quite appropriate uh, to begin to conclude where we began um, at the karstic landscape and the river that emerges and submerges um, so thanks so much um, for chatting today. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you're currently working on. Uh, thank you so much, Dino, uh, for inviting me for this podcast. And um, I know you're doing some amazing uh, anthropological geographic um, research yourself um, in Sarajevo and Istanbul. And uh, I very much hope that we can talk more about your research soon as well. Um, so currently, um, I am, um, as I said, I'm working teaching at SOAS, University of London. It's one of these teaching positions that requires a lot of um, um, teaching time and leaves very little time for what I would much rather um, be doing right now. And this is um, a, a fieldwork that I engaged in or conducted some preliminary investigations for in another a stunning field along the Dineric mountain chain, uh, Popova field, which is currently separated by, into two political entities. And for those who know some of the political geography of Bosnia after the 1990s and the so-called Dayton Peace Agreement, Bosnia is divided between 
the so-called Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina and uh, Re Republika Srpska. Uh, both of these entities are produced or based upon ethnic homogenization and then the district of Bečko, which is where I was born. Uh, now, this field where I'm uh, conducting the preliminary investigations in is divided between those two political entities, yet the this um, river that I write about, this river that actually starts in Gatsko, my previous field site, it emerges in this new field, Popova field, and attains, again, cosmic significance. And uh, so my research is sort of builds upon in, uh, and connects through this uh, sinking river really to a new space, uh, cosmological space and karst space. Um, I have also uh, recently written um, about these shared and syncretic saints, uh, Elijah and George, as they appear in the most unlikely of spaces, and this is the archives of the ICTY, or the International Criminal Tribunal for Former Yugoslavia, which closed its doors um, last year. And um, these archives contain many references to shared saints, uh, but shared saints appear uh, very often as an unacknowledged a sort of uh, unacknowledged reference by those witnesses who attempt to explain Bosnian social life and relations. Yet the sort of the paradigm of Bosnian social relations in the tribunal, despite the fact that uh, it really is the ethno-nationalist uh, war criminals who are on trial who produced kind of this and. Uh, this ethno-national logic, the paradigm of uh, uh, the tribunal and uh, sort of the legal expectations of the tribunal are articulated through um, ethno-national forms of belonging. So what we see in those archives and in those conversations is that law has a very difficult time hearing what the witnesses are saying. So St. Elijah's Day is uh, of course, misspelled in 20 different ways. Um, and we have the same question repetitively asked, you know, about Elijah's. They ask uh, one protected witness, um, yes, but why is this 2nd of August? You remember uh, that you were placed into a refrigerator van and taken from, from your home uh, into another location and then gang raped with other women. How come you remember that it was the 2nd of August? And she says, well, it was the 2nd of August, St. Elijah's Day. Um, Ilya until noon, Ali afternoon. That's what we used to say. So she narrates this kind of life. Then we see that same question appearing again a bit later on in the interrogation. We see the same question with a different spelling of Elijah's Day appearing for another uh, witness, another protected witness. It, you know, these interventions based on shared life into the ICTY are made, but they appear as a certain kind of debris that uh, is sort of uh, outside of the legal paradigm. 
So that and uh, quite a few other things I'm doing at the moment, um, but I'm very much hoping to to go back to some long-term field work, um, as anthropologists would say. Excellent. Um, well, I'm excited to see what comes soon, and I commend listeners to also read your article, Syncretic Debris, that you mentioned in Ethnoscripts, um, a really excellent piece as well. Safet, thank you so much. Um, and to our listeners, thanks for joining us again. Um, our Twitter, if you want to talk back to us, is at NewBooksGeog. Uh, and the book is Waiting for Elijah, Time and Encounter in a Bosnian Landscape. It's by Safet Hajimohamedovic. It was released in 2018 by Berghan. And we will see you next time on New Books in Geography. Thank you.